Welcome to Women Igniting Change, the place to be for women leaders and decision makers who are passionate about changing the world and determined to act. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen, former corporate executive, global speaker, and founder and CEO of Women Igniting Change. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, changemakers. Welcome back to the Women Igniting Change podcast. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen. And today I have the privilege of having in the studio Marina Legree. Marina is the founder and executive director of Ascend Athletics, and they are an international NGO empowering young women in Afghanistan and Pakistan through mountaineering-based leadership training and community service. How cool does that sound? She has an educational background in international affairs and public policy and was awarded the Harvard Kennedy School's Alumni Public Service Award in 2022. We will have her full lengthy bio in the show notes, but for now, Marina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to dive into this topic. So Marie and I spoke what, last week, two weeks ago, something like that. And I remember you said, and this isn't even in the questions, but it, it was so jarring when you said this, I literally like took a, a step back. You said around you are preparing your plans and delivering them to the Taliban government. I'm like, oh my God, did you just hear what you said? It was just so like, oh, wow, wow. Um, so we'll get to that in just a minute. So let's start with with you. So you grew up as a multi-sport athlete. What were some of those pivotal moments that made you realize the transformative power of sports, especially for girls? Sure. So I grew up in a very small town playing all the sports. That was kind of what formed the backbone of my life. And I think it was as a teenager that I really started to see the transformative power of sports because like so many teenage girls, there's so much emotional and physical development going on and sports became the the root for me. It it grounded me and I saw also how it brought out the best in my friends and the and the teammates um that I had. Nice. Is there a specific experience or story that really impacted your commitment to empowering these young girls through sports? For me, that came a bit later when I was in Afghanistan for the first time in, it was a, a year after I had started grad school. And I was in a very rural part of Afghanistan and saw by living amongst the people for, I was there for about a year and a half with that job. Um, that girls had zero opportunity to play sport. And part of my job was to talk to the girls and to understand their needs and desires and all of that. And that physical, all of the joys that come with playing sport, they're totally absent from their lives. So yeah. that, that was just like a, a hit me upside the head. Like how can these, a whole society be lacking in sports? Like they're, they're like, just like me, there will be girls here for whom sports are the way they express themselves and become their best selves. And without that pathway, um, it's just so sad. <laughs> they need it. Every human needs it. That, that was kind of a, just, it was a daily lesson. Yeah. So is that what had you start Ascend Athletics? That was part of it. At that same time, um, because of the type of work I was doing, we were living in town in a regular house and it was important to respect traditions and, and cultural norms. So I couldn't go out. I was cooped up for the first time in my life the, in a way I'd never been before. What um, year was this, Marina? This was 2005, 2006. Okay. Yeah. And I was in the Northeast of Afghanistan in Badakhshan province. And 
there was no like expat scene or <laughs> anywhere to go. It was just, you know, you do your work and then you go upstairs and sleep at night. And so I was starting to go a little, you know, nuts, just cooped up like that. I discovered yoga for the first time. Um, and again, the calming effect that it had on me, the return to my body and my sense of self that that brought for me. Again, it was like, wow, it, we need exercise. We need to play. We need to use our bodies. And girls are totally deprived of that in a lot of places. I, I just happened to be in that one, but uh, it just seemed like an urgent need. And at the same time, I, was, I had the contrast of watching expat mountaineering groups come in occasionally to go and climb in the Wakhan Corridor, which is this famous, beautiful, it's the little strip that goes out to China. Um, mm -hmm. So Afghans don't climb and recreate there at all. It's, it's you know, it wouldn't really, right. them. they don't have the resources for that. But um, Westerners were doing it. And again, the kind of the totally unfair nature of that contrast was something mm -hmm. that I saw on almost a daily basis. So it, it inspired me to not necessarily, I didn't have the idea for Ascend at that time, but to do something to create opportunities for girls to get out and enjoy the environment in which they live. So where did the idea for Ascend come from and when did that materialize? That came a few years later. So I did get out hiking sometimes. Like there were some other expats that would occasionally um, go for hikes. And it was like revolutionary for me to get outdoors and have a good time with a safe group, you know? So that happened a few times. I left that province and in 2009, the first Afghan ever to summit their highest mountain did so. And that was like a light bulb for me. It was two men. Malang Daria is, is one of them who I, I came to know quite well after that. But it was such an inspiring achievement for Afghans and such a galvanizing thing um, to see one of their own standing on top of the highest mountain in their country. So that was like the light bulb moment where I said, okay, so it's doable. Met right. women can too. So let's let's go get it. And I really liked the symbolism of just this purely human achievement. And I wanted to have women experience that and also to to demonstrate that to the the country and to the world that Afghan women can achieve a lot of things. Nice. So you started the organization in 2015, is that right? Yeah. 2014 we registered as a 501c3. Okay. In January 2015. Mm -hmm. Right. So you started it as a pilot program, right, with 20 Afghan girls. Mm-hmm. So share some of those early successes and challenges in getting it off the ground. Sure. So I was terrified about putting the girls at risk by roping mm -hmm. them into this unconventional, potentially very high profile activity. Yeah. Um, that was the biggest challenge, I think. And because of that, I was thinking small. I was thinking, let's get a group of girls whose families are okay with this and we can go do this mountain. Mount Now Shock is the name. And as I went along, I thought, this is silly. I need to think bigger. Um, for one thing, because I had hoped to have six girls in the first group that we could train. And, and we thought an expedition of four, we'd pick the top four and have two on the bench. Uh, and we had 20 that wanted to go wow. right, almost right away that snowballed quickly. So I thought, okay, there's really a desire for this and, um, we need to meet that need. And yeah. that, that happened year by year. So I think that was the biggest challenge was to figure out how to make this, um, not a symbolic activity that would just happen once or twice for some lucky girls, but 
but really build a program around it that could sustain and, and involve a lot more people. Yeah. Take people onto the ground in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. being there and, you know, to describe the, the culture for the girls at that time. And sure. what you saw that precipitated you wanting this desire for them. So in 2014, as you may recall, the the surge was over for the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And it was, it, we went from, I think it was 140,000 troops at the peak. And it was a very quick drawdown and a change in strategy. And so for a lot of analysts here, the sky was falling and everything was over. And a lot of people told me I was just like, it was a fool's errand to start such a program at such a time. And that to me was the first time where it was so obvious the disconnect between policymaking and the reality of women's lives. Yes, yes, U.S. troops were leaving and there are huge differences happening on a policy level, but girls were going about their lives every single day, completely, you know, irrespective of what America was doing. Um, And they would continue to do so. And they were that group of girls. So in 2014, the group that I was working with was 16, 18, 20. So they had lived almost their whole lives with the Western Western presence. Right. Yes. And so there was this bubble of security created around them that allowed them to go to school and to study English and to dream big dreams. And that was still kind of the peak of encouraging girls to do those things. And I think I knew at that time that that balloon would pop at some point and Afghans would be on their own. And I think my my real desire, because at that point I'd been living in the country for five years and working there constantly since 2005. So at that point, I really wanted to equip girls with the internal tools so that yeah. they wouldn't need Westerners propping anybody up. They would have the stuff and they would think about themselves as the change makers. Mm. So it, I think when you asked about successes, I think the biggest successes came when I saw the light go on in certain girls in the program that they wanted that too. And we could yeah. connect on that level. And then it was like, okay, now I've got my teammates. Now we can proceed. I love that. So working in both Afghanistan and Pakistan, what are the distinctions between the two programs? The biggest one, so the program has five pillars and it's mental health, physical fitness and nutrition, leadership, um, community service. And then the fifth one in, in our normal program is mountaineering and rock climbing. Got it. In, which is what we're doing in Pakistan. In Afghanistan, we've had to remove that pillar entirely and replace it with environmental stewardship. And environmental stewardship has always been woven into what we do, but we've drawn it out and we've made it the fifth pillar for, I think, obvious reasons. Um, Otherwise, the the curriculum is the same and the approach is the same. Um, But that huge difference that the girls in Afghanistan need to do all of their activities indoors, with the exception of service projects, which would be in the community. Yeah. So can you share with us, I'm sure you have dozens of these examples, but share with us an example of how these young women have leveraged the tools that they learned through Ascend Athletics. So the biggest examples came, and they still come. Actually, I had some messages last night. Um, The girls that left Afghanistan in August through November, really, of 2021, Mm -hmm. um, they 
have gone through and continue to go through a huge turmoil in their lives. They've left their homes. In most cases, they left their families. They haven't seen their families since that time. Um, and they're, they're in touch with us. We have an alumni association. We have regular interactions. And, and also I have some girls who I know better than others and I, I just stay in touch. And uh, the things they've told me, um, bravery, believing in themselves, believing in their strength, believing they have a right to a dream and a future. Those are the things that really floored me that they were talking about at the time of the evacuation. Yeah. Um, because they had to make these really heartbreaking decisions. We couldn't offer them anything certain. We could offer them an exit on a plane right. by themselves, not with their families. So they had to make really heavy decisions with no time to prepare. And what they said at that time was, I, I believe I have a future. I have the right to an education and a life. And therefore, I want to go. And that's something that they learned by, that's one of the things, the first things we do at Ascend when we start the program is we talk about um, the inherent value of each person and the right to have a dream. And for a lot of the girls, it's really just, um, they've never been asked that before. Like, what do you dream of? What do you want? The future is 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 already laid out for them. Right. So I think those terms of some kind of self-determination is a new thing. Yeah. So Let's go there. Um, so back in August of 2021, you had to abruptly halt the program in Afghanistan because the Taliban took over. And you and your team successfully resettled 134 young Afghan girls in numerous countries around the world. Take our listeners into that experience and the lessons that you learned through that. Because I, I can't even imagine how gut-wrenching that was. It was. It, it still is um, because it, it wasn't like a neat ending for, for anyone, really. Um, but I would do it again tomorrow if I needed to, because what motivated us was the, the certainty, this like sinking certainty that whatever happened, the casualty of this whole situation would be time, this critical time in their lives where these girls need to be moving towards their future, getting an education. And, and we, were, we were right in hindsight. They haven't. Schools are still closed to all of the girls that would have been in our program. Their universities and their schools are closed. So they're sitting at home, um, those who are in Afghanistan. And they're, they're finding other ways, including through our program. But, but yeah, so, so it was a really quick assessment we had to make at that time. Are we going to get involved in this or not? Because <clears throat> who are we? We're, we're just this tiny NGO that does... right empowerment for girls. Like we don't have government funding. Nobody owes us plane tickets. Nobody owes us visas. Um, the first question for any of those programs that you would have heard about in the news is like, what government program are these people falling under? Like all, most of the Afghans who came to the U S they have SIVs, meaning they worked for the U S government. Yeah. Um, irrelevant for us. It, it just happens that I'm American, but that's the only tie to the U S we don't have funding or rights or anything like that. Right. So it, it became a complete scramble. First of all, talking to the board to say, are we doing this? And I very strongly said, I want to do this because I'm being flooded with messages from the girls saying, please help me. I want to die. I cannot stay here. Um, and also our girls are almost, almost all of them at that time were from the Hazara minority, which has been traditionally persecuted 
um, specifically by the Taliban. So there were some very real fears of um, life and limb in addition to loss of freedom. Most of those, it's like I said, it was this loss of, of rights that was really the, the danger. It wasn't that people were being hunted down. That, that didn't apply to our population group. But we didn't know at the time. Nobody knew. And we had extremists coming into Kabul from other parts of the country, roaming the streets, armed and looking really menacing. And, you know, so so that was the scene. And I was, you know, my phone, my phone actually died at one point during that time. And I <laughs> resuscitated it because it was so much communication. Imagine 200 panicked teenage girls and they've all got my number. And if they don't have my actual number on WhatsApp, they can find me on Facebook. They can find anything with Ascend. It comes back to me. So my oh. first step was like, oh my gosh, I need help. Who knows how to talk to these girls and can feel these panicked messages? Calm yeah. them down, figure out what we're doing, tell them what we're not doing so that we're not feeding false hopes also because people, there was this mob mentality. People were running around the city trying to get into the airport. We knew that there was a very serious threat of a terrorist attack at the airport. So we kept getting reports of which specific place do we think the terrorists are going to attack? Tell the girls, get away from that place. You know, and it was that kind of just an insane amount of communicating. So um, yeah, everything else stopped. Life just stopped. I, I, I wasn't there physically, but it was very bizarre because I felt like I was there. I was just nonstop on the phone with girls who were there. And mostly it was by message because the the cell signals aren't strong enough to support conversation. Right. Uh, and I learned also very quickly to just be, you asked what lessons, be decisive, be brief. Um, don't let your emotions guide like that. It was such an emotional time and there was so much panic. I had to really remove myself from any feelings of, oh my gosh, I love this particular girl and I'm worried about her. her. You know, too bad. Pass her the message, get off the phone. <laughs> Yeah. And it, it became um, difficult for me to deal with other Westerners, actually, because I was in that very like robotic mode almost um, of I had to stay very focused on what would actually succeed in getting them out of the country. And I had so many people wanting to talk. It's <laughs> like, this is no not time. Time. <laughs> and yeah. And also, it's not the time for giving false hope. And there were some really difficult choices we had to make. And um, girls that I had to call and say, you can't go or, you know, you, your mother is sick and you can't go. I know you asked me to take your mother. She can't. You're saying, don't call again. That's yeah. So you, when you and I spoke, you you mentioned that the mothers of these girls were their age before when the Taliban was in charge. So they knew the what was going to happen for their daughters and the rights and the freedoms that were going to be rescinded. And you said that these mothers are basically signing over their girls, not knowing where they're going, how they're going to be resettled, if they're going to be okay. Yeah. As a mom to do that, I cannot even imagine. I th That's also what kept me awake um, constantly. I think it was 10 days that I didn't sleep. And I think I told you our board chair, who happens to be um, Swiss, came down. I was living in Italy at the time. So she came down and kind of rescued me because I was just in this. But I felt like I had made promises to certain people. And whatever my limited abilities were, 
the least thing I could do was to stay awake to answer the phone when the chance came for them to move. Because the demand for seats on planes was so high and people were starting, you know, they were trying to pay money for them. They were pushing girls out of the way at the airport. Um, Everybody was calling everybody. Like the vice president had her own list. You know, we had all the celebrities getting involved. So if we were lucky enough to get seats, we needed to be there early and ready and organized and like not be, not give anybody a chance to, to push us to the side. So right. that was kind of my job was to, to be the communicator and with the people who were basically former military and uh, active military as well, who were helping get people onto planes. And then they would call it whatever, you know, it, it was a 24 hour situation. Yeah. And, and Nobody knew also how the Taliban would behave. It was a very um, uncomfortable situation where the U.S. in its withdrawal was collapsing and collapsing and the Taliban were coming forward and forward. And then there was an agreement to just work next to each other to deal with the airport. And it wasn't comfortable at all. And there was a lot of mob violence and things happening. So um, girls were very much at risk. And, yeah, we we just had to be on it. And I I kept thinking of those mothers. Um, Those mothers trusted enough that in us as an organization that we would look after their girls. And and they knew, like you said, they knew what the future might hold. So they were giving the girls their blessing. Yeah. Oof. So I know all of the listeners are going to want to know, how are these girls doing now? Yeah. Well, that's the good news. <laughs> um, it was a really traumatic, difficult time for them then, but they were brave. Like they, they stuck, stuck to it and they got through and the vast majority are doing really well. Um, it depends where they landed, which is eight different countries through, through us. Um, and we (laughs) very rapidly created partnerships where none existed, um, and tried to create a community where the girls could land and really be looked after in a responsible and ethical way. Um, and we were really, really fortunate to have fabulous people step up and do that. So for example, Ireland, um, the Irish government gave us 20 visas and the girls who we sent to Ireland, um, and one husband actually, um, and one little sister is 12 now, maybe 13 by now. They, they're, I think really fortunate. The Irish people were amazing. Um, they're all working, studying some combination of moving their lives forward. Um, they're Irish hosts are, they have their backs, you know, they're doing whatever they can to help them reunite with their families and move forward with their lives. So they're doing great. We have um, a couple in Poland who I've been working with all week to get their paperwork in for their residency, um, which they have continuous residency permit, but we gave them a scholarship so they could study at university there and continue to indefinitely be in Poland. Um, The girls in the U.S., they're almost all studying, which is exactly what we dreamed of, um, including one got a full scholarship to George Washington University, my alma mater. That's amazing. Um, ones at Swarthmore, like they're they're studying, they're working hard, um, and they're doing through the alumni association. We do occasional trips to do what we used to do in Afghanistan: go camping, go rock climbing, do the things they love. And especially the group, and there were six that went to North Carolina, and in the Triangle in North Carolina, there's an incredibly vibrant climbing community. Um, that I basically took in those girls and one brother. And so they climb quite a bit. Um, 
they're doing really well. That's amazing. I love that. So you mentioned like taking them to do the mountaineering in the U.S. where they, they couldn't in Afghanistan. Tell people a little bit about the documentary. So this is how I found Marina. I was on a red eye from Atlanta coming back up home to Albany, New York. And it was like midnight. And I'm like, oh, let's see what's on, you know, the, the Delta Wi-Fi. And I went to the documentaries and there was a documentary on Ascend Athletics, which I devoured and was taking pictures with my phone. And then I reached out to Marina and asked her to be a guest on the podcast. So that's how we got connected. But tell people a little bit more about the documentary and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. But what precipitated you even doing that to begin with? Because it's unbelievable. It was all because of the North Carolina support group. Um, and I could throw out a couple of names. I should, Anne McLaughlin and her husband, Tom, um, and, and a few other people in that North Carolina group. They just embraced the girls. And there was a couple of women um, at Yosemite um, who are part of the Yosemite Search and Rescue, which is a really prestigious, you know, they're, they're awesome women that do that work. They heard about what we were doing during the evacuation and they wanted to know how they could help. So they reached out um, and said, once they get settled, can we invite them to come climbing out here at Yosemite? And Anne told me that that was a request. And at the time we were still in the thick of resettlement. We still had 40 girls in Abu Dhabi. Um, trying, we were trying to get them to Canada and providing kind of daily life support and language instruction and other things. So we were still very much in the resettlement mode. And this seemed, there was a higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it was not on that list at the top. Yeah. I was like, yes, just, yes, that sounds awesome. Um, keep me posted. Thank you, Anne. And so Anne and the team ran with it and, and they got um, the, the two women from Yosar got Patagonia involved and Patagonia basically covered the cost of flights and um, getting the girls outfitted to go climb in Yosemite. That's and incredible. They had a fantastic time. It was in the summer of 2022. So at that point, those girls had been on U.S. soil for less than a year, and the trauma was still really fresh. Um, and and still because of U.S. immigration law, those people have not seen their families since that night that they left Kabul. And going climbing, I mean, they they landed on their feet, and they just have demonstrated this incredible resiliency in fitting into communities they'd never heard of or dreamed about going to, but going to Yosemite in this group of women that was so caring and shared their passion for being outdoors and climbing. It was really something that um, I think was healing and brought joy into their lives at the time when they were kind of ready for it and, and needed that. So we're, we're really grateful for that opportunity. Um, I got to go as a little part of the filming up to North Carolina and reunite with those girls, which I also hadn't because I was living in Italy at the time of the evacuation. And, you know, we had girls all over the world. I couldn't see them all after kind of going through this. And they also like at the time that we were doing this crazy, you know, middle of the night passing messages to go to this gate at this time. And I didn't tell the girls anything because there was a huge risk of other people hearing about our methods and tagging on and ruining it. Wow. So I, all I could tell the girls was be at this point, take your 10 kilos. I'm not telling you anything else. Just trust me. <laughs> yeah. And then there's no time for like follow-up chats, you know? So I hadn't ever 
shared with them what was going on behind the scenes, nor had they shared with me. And I would text them and say, you know, like, I need a note. Your mom has to write a note on a piece of paper, sign it that says, you know, she gives permission or your dad or whomever. And, but that was the the full extent of our conversation. So being in North Carolina with the girls um, and hearing kind of from their point of view, what that experience was like, I think it was a really, um, it was, it was a beautiful thing. And uh, yeah, so that the film is called Ascend. Um, Patagonia has made it available online. So you can go to Patagonia's website or ours. And, um, and those girls who are in it are very much real people. (laughs) Last night, they're doing great. So you said, um, you know, you had an opportunity for the girls to share with you the experience from their perspective. What was that experience like through their lens? Well, they, I'll talk about Mina because she's, she's spoken about this on NPR as well. So it's not, it's not a secret. Um, (laughs) she was starting to give up hope. Mina was in our program. Um, she and I, knew each other personally because we had gone ice climbing and winter camping in 2020. Um, and then she was done. She wasn't in the program in 2021. She was done and doing other things. Um, so she kind of lost hope when that the initial surge of people rushing to the airport and all of that happened. Um, and then it, it settled down because then that terrible terrorist attack happened. And we had told people also don't go to the airport. We can't advise it. Um, and there was, it wasn't clear that there would ever be any other way out. So Mina was in that frame of mind thinking like, what can I do? Um, I, I can't be here, but there's no way out. She had no, no pathway, no claim on anything. Um, and then we sent her a message because we had our alumni lists and we were checking in. I had a couple of key volunteers who knew the girls also and were reaching out. And Mina was said she was, it was like a ray of hope. She was totally surprised. And, but also she didn't, she's not a fool. She didn't just believe that her life would be saved. Right. But she spoke to her mom and it was totally unclear. At that time, we were actually trying to get her to France. We had very like advanced discussions with a group of French mountaineers who were going to take the girls in on the special internship visa as mountaineering Mm -hmm. apprentices, basically. And that was the plan. It fell through because the French government didn't approve it. And in the meantime, I had got a call that we could take a batch of girls. So I said, put Mina on the bus. And, but Mina doesn't know any of this. She didn't know that the French thing fell through and like, we're not keeping them updated. Um, And we had told the girls that too, if we have a chance, we're going to take it for you. You don't get to, it's not shopping here. You know, you get one shot. You go. Yep. And we had a couple of girls that had the shopping mentality and we took them off the list. We said, well, you can't, there are people desperate to leave if, if you're not that desperate. You're off the list. Yeah. Um, it was it was tough. Anyway, so for Mina, she she spent those days kind of alternating between total depression, thinking her future was over, and a little ray of hope. And then she talked to her mom, and her mom gave her her blessing. And basically, she got a message from me on WhatsApp saying, "We have a chance for you. You're on the list. Uh, I don't know where you're going, but you need to be at these coordinates at." I remember it was like five o'clock in the morning next to a gas station in Kabul. You can take 10 kilos. Don't tell anybody. I need a note from your parents that you consent to this. And um, yeah, don't tell anybody and you have to come alone. And for every single girl, the question was, what about my family? I said, every time, I'm sorry, we can't. Um, it's up to you. And, and I need to know like within the hour if you're a yes or a no. 
because then I had to get all of the bio data for every single person in perfectly correct format back to the people who were screening for their you know entry to the buses. So if I had people on the fence, they got booted off the list. Wow. Um, or if they, their phone, their battery died and they couldn't answer anything like that. So Mina was just on it too. She had her phone plugged into the wall. She, she knew she wanted to go and she just went in the, in the very early morning and got on a bus. And it, for her, it was a 10 hour ride across to Mazari Sharif in the North of the country. Um, and then at that point, it was a, a long set of negotiations between our government. Um, the Qatar government was helping. Um, and we were trying to get people on charter planes out of Afghanistan, properly vetted landing rights in a country that would take them. Um, and visa status at that point, we had no idea where Mina's final. We had visas to Ireland and to Chile. So whenever we got people through that initial vetting, right. we would fill those spots, send them to Ireland. But Ireland, for example, it, they had to be English speakers. Got um, it. So yeah, it was this. So for wow. Mina, she didn't know any of that. And she just got on the bus. And that meant, you know, walking through the city where Taliban were roaming the streets and by herself at five years in the dark. Her family escorted her to the bus station and then they had to leave. Yeah. Ooh, the courage that it had to have taken for these girls to do any of that is truly mind blowing. It is. And what I think what impressed me about a lot of the girls is their eyes were on the prize. <laughs> you know, this, they wanted to get an education. That was the main thing. And a lot of them are, were already through high school and they were in their university studies. They had plans and they didn't want to lose that. So right. yeah, it was, it was a lot of bravery. So let's go back to Afghanistan for just a moment. How do you navigate working with the Taliban government while trying to still maintain the integrity of the program there? So our program is designed to give girls the tools to succeed in their own context. And we keep that at the very front of our minds. There is no construct that is the one right way to be mm -hmm. a leader and to be a change maker. It has to work right. where you live. So I'm not a real fan of what's going on there. We could say, say that, but I, it's not my job to rail against any government. Um, it's my job to give girls tools that will help them figure out how to move the needle in their own society. So that's how we navigate it. We, we have to be pragmatic and we have to remember what is our purpose and who is our audience. Um, and the Taliban, I have to say, have always been present. I mean, I, I've been working there since 2005. For me, this type of thinking, it's nothing new. It's more extreme and now it's endorsed officially. Right. And that makes things really hard. Um, but the type of thinking that the Taliban personify, it's present across society. And it always has been. And that is the battle that the girls have to fight. We can't fight that for them, right. nor can we lock horns with any government if we hope to operate. I mean, that's right. we're not an advocacy organization. We need to um, 
And again, we have to be pragmatic. And our goal is really to to keep operating. And we've had some really interesting conversations too, where the Taliban are not, um, they're not all of the same view. Um, in what way? Um, there are a lot of functionaries in government who are civil servants who kept their jobs, basically. Um, yeah. And they're not ideologues. So there's a little bit of space to maneuver. And um, the Taliban are under a lot of pressure as well to to get things right. And they're getting an awful lot wrong. And they're hearing about it. Um, so I guess we, we're just playing the long game. Like our investment is in the girls. And um, right. we have to... We have to hold our nose sometimes and uh, ignore the the circumstances so that we can focus on what we're there to do. Yeah. So how do you, with the Taliban in charge now, how do you ensure that cultural sensitivity while trying to effectively administer the program? How have you had to tweak it since the Taliban took over? So it's daily conversations with our leadership team in Afghanistan, who are all Afghans. And it really helps that um, the the person who's directing our operation there is somebody that I've known since my very first job in Afghanistan in 2005. Um, so he's got good judgment and has seen a lot happen. Um, also comes from a place where Taliban have always been present um, in smaller numbers. But, you know, it's again, this is this is not a brand new phenomenon <laughs> for him. Um, so it's. We keep our ear to the ground on what the um, regulations, new changes, all of that. And we try to stay under the radar, basically, like we're not picking fights where it's not necessary. Um, And the girls themselves. So this we've hired um, a staff of 11 instructors um, and they're all amazing women. Um, I was really fortunate to spend some time with them in August and get to know them a little bit. Um, and they are really smart. They know perfectly well the challenges in which they live. And they're also really motivated to, uh, to keep going, to, to not butt up against authorities and be stopped. They want to keep going. So we rely a lot on their, the intelligence and the competence of the people on the ground. Yeah, And it's our job at HQ to understand our, our ultimate objective and to be willing to to flex a little bit and to to adapt to what works locally. Yeah. So what are some broader advocacy initiatives or policy changes that you believe are needed to promote gender equality and girls' access to sports on a global scale? Well, Title IX was an absolutely tremendous right. piece of legislation in this country, and it opened the door to so much opportunity for so many girls and women. I would like to see other countries um, take a similar stance. In developing countries, it's not a priority. Um, That's clear. And when we're running up against that constantly, if people think that we're just about sports, it seems like something extra. Um, So we have a very strong focus on mental health and there's very strong research correlating, you know, exercise and mental health. This is not new. Um, And also women's health. a better understanding of our bodies, what we're capable of and how to take care of ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would like to see access increased to those specific subjects um, for girls. And, and it, there needs to be a mind shift where it's not extra. It's, it is mental health is health. I think we're all starting to understand that now and to have um, 
good mental health, we need exercise. It's essential. And I think the more that we can work on that, um, there's some wonderful groups out there like Right to Play is somebody that we we love what they do, getting uh, PE, basically, a physical education curriculum in schools at at an early age. Uh, Moves like that, I think, should absolutely be supported. And initiatives like that are, there's way too little investment in them. There's a lot of play given to um, vocational training, economic um, initiatives, and, all, and which is all really important. But health, exercise is part of health and sports are the expression of that. So right. I think we need more investment. Yeah. So as someone who received the Harvard Kennedy School's Alumni Public Service Award last year, what advice would you have for our listeners who aspire to create positive social impact through their work? First thing is look around and see what who's working on issues that you care about mm-hmm. and get involved and yeah. sit on a board, volunteer. Um, we spend a lot of time working with our board and boards do. They do hard work and right. nonprofits rely on voluntary board members to drive them forward. Um, so that's one thing. Don't don't overlook that, um, especially if your audience is a lot of women who are executives. Um, that's, that's a special crowd and we need you on boards. Um, I guess the second thing I would say is to be an ally. Uh, first, look around again, who is working in, in the places um, that you're interested in on the issues that you care about and mm-hmm. offer allyship. And yeah, it's, it's very much needed. It, it can be lonely out here. And it's wonderful when people reach out and say, I care about what you're doing. Um, how can I help? Like we're now going to become involved in a set, which I'm ecstatic around. So I love like when serendipities like that just kind of magically happen. Absolutely. Yes. Experience in navigating these challenges and these crises. What advice can you offer individuals listening and or organizations about building that resiliency and adaptability in the face of those unexpected challenges? It was a real test, I would say, <laughs> that particular crisis. Yeah. Um, I think some of the lessons that I learned, that the first one was to really be clear on what is the outcome you want to achieve. Um, and then being flexible along the way and taking the hits and being able to keep going. Um, th- there were a lot of hits, and, but, and there was a lot of noise that we had to tune out as we were working. Um, like I said, these celebrities got involved. In some cases, that was really helpful. In others, it was really just added to the noise and confusion, raised hopes and then broke them. Um, So keeping focused on what are we doing here? Um, Why are we involved? And I had the wisdom of the woman who's now our board chair, um, who spent a long time working with the Red Cross, um, constantly asking us all, who is at risk? Like it's easy to get caught up in a crisis and you want to help everybody. You want to do everything you want to do, do, do. And I think that's also a very American habit, um, which I have as well. Like we want, we want action. We have a strong bias for action. And sometimes that's not the right instinct. Sometimes you need to think and who is at risk. So it was, um, it was that wisdom saying, because we could have easily filled up all of the visas that we had and all of the plane seats that we had with just a few lucky families. Um, we instead chose individual girls who could then transform the lives of themselves and help their families in the future. Um, that was her voice. 
saying, you know, who is at risk? Dads are not really at risk. The brothers aren't. It's the girls. Um, so that focus, being able to um, tune out whatever else isn't driving the mission forward. Mm-hmm. That was that was really important. And I think we also were unafraid to ask for help. Um, we had no business doing what we did. Like there, there is no way. There was no playbook or SOPs around that. <laughs> and we didn't have the money for that. Like the, the amount of money that we raised, it was like four times what we normally raise in a year um, for that effort. But we, we shouted about it. We asked, we used, we called everybody. Right. Um, I used my, my Kennedy school classmates. It's an awesome group of people, but I put it, we had a group chat on WhatsApp and I put out a, a message because people had asked me, what can we do? What's going on? And I said, what well, we need visas right now. If, if you want to help, it's not money. People are spending millions on planes that can't even land at the airport. Right. We need the end game. We need the visas. We want legal, dignified pathways for these people. So it's a public policy school. Who do we know? Um, right. and, and that's how we got a lot of the visas. My classmates answered. Um, they were amazing and they were willing to make phone calls and willing to be uncomfortable and ask people for favors. So I think that was a really interesting lesson for me. And we're struggling with it now. During a crisis, we had no problem coming together as a team, asking for help, um, being crystal clear on what we wanted. Um, but generating that sense of urgency now about the state of women in the world it's a lot harder, <laughs> but I feel just as urgent when I see what goes on in our world. And, and I, we know there, there's research supporting all the different facets of mm-hmm. why it's important to empower women, why it benefits us all. But we can't get people's attention. It's not a crisis. Right. So that's it's us, but yeah. Yeah. So that's my next challenge is to figure out how to leverage that goodwill that is there in people. People will answer and they will help during a crisis. But how do you get people to see um, that we can avoid these kinds of crazy situations if there are more women at the helm? Right. And in peacemaking. Yeah. Which there are very, very few. Very few. Yeah. Well, I we literally could talk for hours. Uh, we may need a part two to this. Um, so how can our listeners, whether individuals or organizations, get involved and support Ascend Athletics and its mission? I love that question. First of all, visit our website and sign up for our newsletter. We put out, we obviously don't have the time or staff to be spamming anybody. We do a once a month newsletter that um, tells you what's going on in our three programs, Ascend Pakistan, Ascend Afghanistan, and the Ascend Alumni Association. So sign up for the newsletter. And if you can do it, sign up for a donation. We do monthly donations like any nonprofit starting at $10 a month. Um, That really means a lot to us because it gives us the ability to plan. Like we know who's with us. Uh, So donations. I mean, that's we we are 60% funded by private individuals. And the rest is from foundations, family foundations. So Mm -hmm. it's all private support. And it means a lot to us. So if you care about what we're doing, um, obviously donate. But also follow us on social media. Um, we tell our story pretty routinely um, on our Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. So um, I think those are the two main things. And just join us. You'll see the the work that we're doing. And um, we occasionally put out calls to action there as well. 
Beautiful. Uh, Marita, thank you so much for being here. This was extraordinary. And for our listeners, we will have links to Send Athletics. We'll have links to the documentary that you can watch, Marita's bio and all the things. And we will see you back here next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Women Igniting Change. I know creating change matters to you. If you enjoy what we talk about on the show, please take one action today and share it with someone who could benefit from listening. Until next time, keep standing up and speaking out for what matters.